Broadcasting from high above the reserve, this is Radio Harambe. Future of the children, children of the world, you deserve a better life. Every time the child gives me a smile, I'm touched deep within my heart. For them, I see the means. Jumble, everyone, and thank you as always for tuning into Radio Harambe. I'm Dave McBride, broadcasting from Radio Harambe Studios in a cold, wet, dreary, Awful Memorial Day weekend here in New Jersey. <laughs> and joining me from, from, the, from the deserts of Las Vegas, <laughs> relaxing by the pool. And I'm not by the pool, but it is about almost, it's in the 80s. It's only, uh, you know, nine o'clock in the morning. So we're going to be up into the 90s today. So it'll be pool weather later, is what you're saying. Oh, yeah. I'll be, I'll definitely be at the pool later for sure. <laughs> Safari Mike. Mike, how are you? <laughs> Very well, Dave Jumbo. Mike, today we are um, doing the 2021 class of the Animal Kingdom Hall of Fame. We started this mm-hmm. last year with our inaugural class, and we'll get to that in just a second. But um, we wanted to make our 2021 inductions. Sooner or later, This is we're going to have listener involvement in this that is definitely the plan but we wanted to get a few out of the way early that mike and i both think are unanimous what we would call unanimous inclusions right. into the uh disney's animal kingdom hall of fame but before we do that mike is there anything any news wise any stuff we need to talk about about the animal sure. kingdom I and mean, we were open again so we have that to worry about again which we didn't for the last year so <laughs> there wasn't really much news at all but some might come now right Okay, so first, before we get started, let's talk about our store. Um, go to uh, T Public and purchase. Um, we have just released, I think, six new designs uh, celebrating some of the great signs that you see around the park. There's a Chester and Hester's. There's a T-Tac Lumber Company. There is a uh, Samawadi Water Co- Company from Kadani Village. So go check that out. And all the proceeds are going to go to the International Ranger Federation because it's International Ranger Day on July 31st. So we're kind of uh, going to help them out for a couple of months. So go check those out. There's also a World Ranger Day uh, special uh, T-shirt on there. So check out our T Public stores on all of our um, social media. You can see it on my Instagram, which is at Jumbo Everyone. Dave's Instagram, uh, my excuse me, my Twitter, which is at Jumbo Everyone. Right. Dave's Instagram, which is Disney's Animal Kingdom. Right. Correct. Correct. Yeah, so check that out, and uh, you'll be able to, to, to buy some cool shirts. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, Dave, there are a couple of little things. Number one is they're starting to remove the social distancing stickers on some of the rides at Disney's Animal Kingdom. I saw just the other day they removed them at Navi River Journey and Expedition Everest. 
and Expedition Everest, of course. If you recall the episode a few back where we were going over my trip, I mean, the line for Expedition Everest went all the way past Finding Nemo right. um, to, to social distance, even though it was only like a 20-minute wait. So um, they're starting to remove those, so there would be less... I mean, it did kind of create some congestion in the walkways where you ordinarily wouldn't have it. And um, so that's going to free up. So those two rides I know have gotten the uh, social distancing removed. Another thing is on May 15th, just a couple of weeks ago, Disney uh, started the Celebration of the Lion King show, which is a, a kind of a reduced version of the Festival of the Lion King. It's called a Celebration of the Festival of the Lion King. And the couple of things that they've removed, they've removed all the tumble monkeys. That whole bit with the tumble monkeys is gone. There are less performers. The, uh, the, 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 the ballerina who would fly up in the air as, and, uh, you know, as a, like a bird, not part of the show currently. So hopefully all those will come back, but at least there is a Lion King going on now. Mike, can you explain to me what that's all about? Not sure why. Uh, I think it has – what it probably has to do is they, they, they realize they could probably save some money by not bringing all the performers back right away. And uh, that's what they're doing. I mean, they're still at 35% capacity, although that's going – actually, they got bumped up. I'm not sure what they're at now. But it was 35% when I was there. So, you know, they're just cheaping out. There's no other reason for it. I mean, this has nothing to do with COVID. I mean, the t- having the right. tumble monkeys perform have nothing to do with you- – you're not going to – more likely to get COVID if the tumble monkeys were on the show. <laughs> right. And once you're sitting – I mean, unless they're making the show three minutes long – once you're sitting in there for, you know, 15 minutes or 10 minutes or whatever it yeah, is. Yeah, it's a shorter show for sure. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. but yeah, but you still have some performers. You're still sitting in seats. I'm sure they're separating you out. I'm not sure exactly how that works, but, uh, you know, there is that. Uh, one last thing, Dave, is mm-hmm. that a new um, baby zebra was born on Kilimanjaro Safaris. Uh, a baby Hartman's Mountain Zebra, uh, which you could see at Kadani Village as well as Kilimanjaro Safaris. Uh, was born. It was about 65 pounds. And in this part of the uh, species survival program, uh, Hartman's mountain zebras are endangered, uh, unlike the plain zebras, which do pretty well. I mean, there's, you know, hundreds of thousands in Africa. But the Hartman zebras are a little bit more endangered. And so they're part of a species survival program. So it's great news that a new baby was born. And if you were lucky enough to be on the safari ride, you could have seen it be born because it was born in front in on view. Um, and, uh, so that baby will be joining this, the, um, the, the herd in the Savannah pretty soon. It was born, you know, they've taken it off for now and keeping it backstage for a little bit, but soon it'll be there. And, you know, there's been other animals born this summer during COVID. There was a couple of Maasai giraffes, Maple and Zella. There was Ranger the Rhino and Ivy the Mandrel were all born in the last couple of months. And now we've added a, uh, Hartman's Mountain Zebra to the list of, uh, babies born on the safari. Very, very, very cool. I, 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 didn't didn't uh, your bride to be uh, actually <laughs> see a, a birth of a giraffe once? Yes, yeah. She was. Uh, she. Can I don't imagine? think she actually saw the birth, but she was there as it was probably, happening. Like, uh, yeah, the yeah. baby was born within minutes because her. She was unbelievable. Earlier, she was on the ride, and they were just dead stop for like fifteen minutes because yeah. you know. Half a mile down the road, the baby was actually being born, and they just stopped traffic while while that actually happened. How but she cool. was there as the baby was still like you know, all soaking wet and all that kind of stuff, and on the on the safari. 
That's that that had to be amazing. Um, okay, so uh, is that the news? Do we have anything else? I don't want to interrupt you. No, that's in the news. Uh, I you know that, and I got engaged. Is that news? <laughs> Nobody cares about that, Mike. They only care about Disney, unless you unless you got engaged at uh, you know in, in standing in the savannah next to a lion in front of the tree of life. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, okay, so are the 2021 inductions into the Disney Animal Kingdom Hall of Fame. Last year, this is the Radio Harambe Animal Kingdom Hall of Fame. Last year, we began. Is there this, another? Uh, Hold on. No, is, there, is, the, is there another? I think this is the only one. I think we're by ourselves. <laughs> okay. um, last year, we began this process of inducting uh, a class into the Hall of Fame for the Animal Kingdom. Last year's was, correct me if I'm wrong, Joe Rohde, Walt Disney, Michael Eisner. And Rick Barangi. And Rick Barangi. Now, for those of you who don't, you know the first three names for sure. Rick Barangi um, is sort of the speared up the animal side of uh, the animal kingdom. Is is that a good way to put it? Yeah, he was working at at the San Diego Zoo at the time. He was, uh, you know, one of the assistant director or whatever of something. And uh, Bill Conway, who was the director, longtime director of the Bronx Zoo. Right. Uh, Joe Rohde went to him and said, you know, we really need a zoo guy. And Bill Conway said, Rick Barangi is your man. And, you know, Rick Barangi started like in 1993 or 94 um, when he was, you know, just sort of consulting. And then he was actually hired. Actually, I think it was like even earlier than that. It was like 1991. Don't forget the park opened in 1998. So that was right. way before right. Right. Uh, the park opened. He was eventually hired full time like in 93, 94 or something like that. I'd have to go back and look at my notes. But, uh, you know, he was mm-hmm. – he basically – Basically, when Joe Rohde was putting the park together and he wanted to know, like, how many hippos can they put in a pool or, you know, what animal can live with what animal, they consulted with Rick Barangi and then he eventually came on. So, you know, Kilimanjaro safaris, all that kind of stuff, how it was designed and what animals you see where. Rick Barangi had a lot of, lot to do with that as well as uh, um, Maharaja Jungle Shrek. He shortly after the park opened, he was he left. He's now the director of the Houston Zoo, which is a, a leading zoo in the country. Um, and he's their director. So, uh, you know, he's he's been around for a while and he, he was a instrumental in the part. And I asked Joe Rohde about, you know, what was, you know, how was how important was Rick? And, and he said Rick was there every day, um, you know, working on the Animal Kingdom, even though he wasn't an Imagineer. He was fully involved in the design aspects, at least when it came to the animal sections of the park. If you took all of the executives at Disney at the time, all of the Imagineers at Disney at the time, put them all in a room in 1990, there's not a single person in that room that has the foggiest idea what to do with live animals. <laughs> right. So they needed somebody to head up that end right. of it, uh, you know, mm-hmm. and what a huge end of it it was. And that was Rick Barangi. So he also, by the way, he also not to I know we've already went through him. He also um, made Disney open up the uh, do the conservation advisory board, which led to the Disney Conservation Fund and all that kind of stuff. So he was instrumental in that part, too. Right. Okay, so that was the that was the initial class. What do you call them? The the inaugural class. Inaugural class. Is class, that what they yes, call correct. them in uh, in yes. baseball? I forget what they call them in baseball. Yeah, but yeah. There is inaugural class. Yeah. So that was the Babe that, Ruth, Ty Cobb. That was the, those those exactly. are the Babe Ruths and Ty Cobbs. <laughs> so uh, Mike and I both being baseball nuts, uh, this is all really based on the Baseball Hall of Fame. So what we're going to do today is we're inducting our next three. These are these are basically the three guys that. And there's more than three as we go through this that Mike and I feel just need to go in. 
uh, what order they come in and all that kind of stuff, you know, who knows? But uh, and as the process moves on, like I said, we might get some listener involvement in this and deciding who gets in and who doesn't or who gets nominated or that kind of thing. Um, and then because, again, um, we're obsessed with the baseball angle angle of this, <laughs> um, we're also we're going to initiate three new members of the Animal Kingdom Hall of Fame and the first inductee as a pioneer in the Animal Kingdom Hall of Fame. Now, as Michael probably explained better than I, the Baseball Hall of Fame was originally made for baseball players, <laughs> right? Oddly enough. But as the years <clears throat> moved on, the Hall decided to induct other people who had huge impacts on baseball that were not baseball players. And Mike, check me if I'm wrong. Broadcasters, executives, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, umpires, umpires, and, and pioneers, and pioneers. Now, in baseball, pioneers, uh, how would are what you would say those very very early days ball players, right? right. Who or 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 managers. Or or people who invented the game, really. People who invented the game. And then there's this the whole list of, I mean, baseball changed. Uh, we don't get too far down the road here, but baseball changed greatly when mm-hmm. Babe Ruth came through. Statistics are all different. Players are all different. And the game you see now is relatively the same as it was in the 20s or maybe the late teens when the dead ball era ended. It's, yeah. it's very similar to that 100 years later. But before that, it was very different. So my feeling is, before 1998, <laughs> yeah. Disney's Animal Kingdom was very different. And there are a group of people who led to directly to the making of the Animal Kingdom, but perhaps never saw the Animal Kingdom, never worked directly with it, were never, um, you know, a real part of the building or... Direct right. design. So to me, that's how I that I wanted to add that group, uh, th- those people into there, In of which probably Walt Disney is the true first one. I was just about to say that Walt is we when we inducted Walt Disney uh, last year, he was sort of kind of the first pioneer. Right, and he probably would. You know, when when the when the building is built uh, in Harambe for the Radio Harambe Hall of Fame and mm-hmm. and the museum is built and, <laughs> and guests can walk in and see the plaques on the wall and all this kind of stuff. Walt will probably be in the pioneer wing uh, and the first big plaque, probably the door you open to get into the pioneer wing of our of our massive museum that's being built there. <laughs> uh, so but and so today we're going to have three new inductees and one pioneer. So shall okay. we begin with our inductees? Sure. Who is your sure. first? Uh, Mike is going to handle uh, one two. or two of them. I'm going to handle one, and then we'll do sort of the pioneers together. Sure. So why don't we do? You want to do this just in alphabetical order? How, uh, however you want to do it. Uh, just the first the one. First on your one. List. The first one who we're putting in, Dave, is Paul Comstock. Uh, now the name probably doesn't sound familiar to many of you, and I think that'll probably be true with most of the rest of these. But Paul was vital in uh, designing initially the Disney's Animal Kingdom. He was the landscape artist. He was the chief uh, director of landscape design at Imagineering for a while and basically spearheaded uh, Disney's Animal Kingdom. So the way it looks now, and we talk about how 
the Animal Kingdom is such a green park. You know, how the Oasis looks, how Harambe looks, how the Safaris looks, how all of that looks. A lot of that has to do with Paul Comstock and his landscape design. Uh, he went to uh, graduated from UCLA and then he went on to be uh, he went to Disney. He he was he's currently the owner of Comstock Landscape Art. And it's not just uh, Disney's Animal Kingdom that he did, but he was also instrumental in designing the Animal Kingdom Lodge, the Jumbo House. So when you walk around the Jumbo House and you go outside and you see all the great, beautiful landscaping and stuff like that, that's Paul. He did help design Epcot. He was in charge of Hong Kong Disney when that opened up. So after he left Disney's Animal Kingdom, he went over to the Hong Kong Disney Project. And he's done many other things. He's designed a wildlife park in the uh, United Arab Emirates. He designed the Botanical Gardens at the L.A. County Museum. He's designed, um, you know, numerous, several. He was part of the refurbishment of Dodger Stadium, speaking of baseball. He was a key uh, landscape designer and how they redesigned uh, Dodger Stadium uh, recently. So Paul Comstock, we talked about, and I encourage you to go back to listen to an old uh, Radio Harambe episode. It might have actually been a two-parter where we talked about landscaping uh, Disney's Animal Kingdom. And you'll hear me talk about Paul Comstock uh, during those episodes on several occasions. He had he was very instrumental in how the design of this park, how you know, how many different trees, how many uh, you know uh, plants that are native to that to those areas. You know, he designed, for example, the Cretaceous Trail when he was bringing in all these plants that were. Uh, you know, around since the time of dinosaurs, put them on that in, in that area. He des- he designed, he made sure that there was the appropriate, uh, you know, trees at, uh, at on the Kilimanjaro safaris. Even though they couldn't bring in specific a- African trees, he was able to use trees that are you know more local around here, like oak trees and stuff, and design the, you know grow them in such a way and 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 cut them down in such such a way that they really look like uh, you're in Africa. So all of that. You know, really transporting you into Anandapur and Harambe and the Oasis and the Tree of Life. Paul Comstock is a huge um, part of all of that. So he is the first inductee that I'm putting in for the 2021 class. And, uh, you know, not that I think Paul Comstock needs to be justified at all, but just to explain a little bit more, at least from my end, when Mike mm-hmm. presented this to me uh, or when we thought about these things, listen. The, the Animal Kingdom is in itself a game changer in a lot of things of theme park construction. If you look at theme parks before the Animal Kingdom, right, they all kind of felt a little bit the same. There were buildings, they were themed buildings, and you went from a, uh, a uh, parking lot into this, and there was a something in the middle and a big icon that everybody knew and understood, and you went to your different rides and all this kind of stuff. The Animal Kingdom reset all that in two really um, two different ways, two unique mm-hmm. ways. One was the inclusion of live animals and a story that included live animals and the earth. The second was this idea that Walt always had of immersion and taking that to a level that had never been achieved before. And that was achieved through landscaping. When you walk into Disney's Animal Kingdom and go through the Oasis, you're in a different world, a world in which you can almost not see the world Mm -hmm. around you. And there Mm -hmm. aren't any 
there really aren't any theme parks that do it as efficiently as this does it and a way that this does it. And after the success of this, I think people thought of the idea of immersion much differently. And because of that, you got super immersive things like the Harry Potter land and and other stuff like the Cars land, where the idea of immersion into a space wasn't just about making buildings that look nice and have guys in costumes walking around talking in in Western accents. You know, it was something that went beyond it. And Comstock is the guy who made that a reality. And when you walk into the animal kingdom, probably what you don't realize is just how incredibly massive a role the vegetation around you plays in the sight lines that you have. Mm-hmm. It's immersion in 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 theme park designs was always explained to me as controlling eyesight eye sight lines for guests, right? And you see a lot of different times where Disney has had to kind of cut through those sight lines um, and and not be able to really immerse you and then have to play with those a little bit. Famously, if you look at a certain angle from Epcot across the lagoon, you could see the Tower of Terror, but you see it best from an area where it sort of blends in color-wise with the, um, with the uh, Morocco uh, Pavilion. So the spot in in Epcot where you see the tower the most, they kind of match the color with the Morocco Pavilion so that they can fool mm-hmm. your eyesight a little bit. Also, famously, you could see the 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 Contemporary Hotel from kind of just a decent enough spot <laughs> in Future World where it sort of blends with Future World as you're as you're kind of looking around. Well, here Comstock took that all to a different level and just immersed you into this world that is you know unlike anything's anybody anyone's done before so here's this landscaper who rewrote the book on theme park design in a way that nobody had done for the 50 years they were making theme parks before him and so if you don't think Comstock's a big deal man Oh boy! I mean, he was a big deal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, Disney's Animal Kingdom. It, I mean, just landscape is so vital to Disney's Animal Kingdom, more vital than probably the, any of the other parks, really. Uh, and <clears throat> he just really uh, did a, an amazing job in, tr- in really helping you transport you to Africa, to Asia, to you know, nineteen fifties, uh, you know, Southwest United States, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, he really did a fantastic job of doing that. If all the landscaping did was in the Kilimanjaro safaris, it would have been the greatest landscaping job ever done in a theme park, full stop. If we just talked exactly, yeah. talk just about that one attraction, but you add the rest of it, the Oasis, the Discovery Island, the things that are on there. I mean, it's just, it's mind-blowing what they put into here. And the fact that the guy knew every single plant. <laughs> there used to be a list. He used to be able to take a picture and get a get a, uh, get a get uh, an explanation of what the plant was you were looking at. I don't know if you could still do that. But you, could, you used to be able to do that because that's how seriously they took landscaping at the animal kingdom that's never been done before and let me tell you something 
There ain't no way the evil Bobs would pay for that nowadays. <laughs> no, no chance. No chance. No chance at all. <laughs> so welcome to the hall, Mr. Comstock. Who's next? All right, I'll do the second one, and that's Peter Dominic. Now, some people might know his name because he is the architect who designed Disney's Animal Kingdom Lodge. Jumbo House is all uh, Peter Dominic. He also, of course, designed the Wilderness Lodge and the Grand Californian Lodge out in Disneyland. And anybody who's been to either of those, as well as the Jumbo House, can see sort of the similarities of them. Um, Mr. Uh, Dominic, unfortunately, passed away on January 1st, 2009, but he was... He was young. Um, he was only in his 60s, I believe. Yeah, he was only in his 60s, yeah. yeah. He graduated from Yale University with a Bachelor's of Science in Architectural Studies and then got a master's degree from the University of Pennsylvania, so two Ivy League schools. His dad actually was a two-term United States senator from Colorado and also the ambassador to Switzerland for a while. Um, Peter Dominic spent most of his life in Denver, and he's very western in his design and he brought uh, some of that kind of idea certainly to the wilderness lodge but also to some degree to the animal kingdom lodge he was um vital in the redesigning of denver so anybody who's out has been to denver and been downtown has seen kind of the revitalization of it peter dominic was big on that and also dave there's this weird museum on route 80 in nebraska called the great platte river road archway it's this big archway that goes over Route 80 in Nebraska. It's a museum dedicated to uh, Route 80. And Peter Dominic designed mm-hmm. that as well. But he designed – but, of wow. course, if we, we talk about Disney. It's all about um, uh, Animal Kingdom Lodge. And Peter Dominic, um, even though he was living in Colorado, frequently traveled, traveled to Africa to help him uh, you know, sort of get an idea as to what he wanted to do for the Animal Kingdom Lodge. And he used theming and proportion – to really help make you uh, feel like you're in the story. And, and we talked about uh, some of the design aspects of the Jumbo House a couple episodes ago in the um, uh, uh, art of the Animal Kingdom Lodge. And I talked a little bit about, you know, the chandeliers used Maasai uh, shields and like how some of the uh, pillars seem like elephant tusks and things like that. That was all Peter Dominic's idea. The backstory, of course, to the Animal Kingdom Lodge is you are stepping out at an African crawl, which is sort of this enclosed savanna, uh, and it's built on an extinct lava. And he took that kind of backstory and really applied it to the design of the building itself. And it, it even he even made it look like so when you first walk into the Jumbo House, the front is not that grand. I mean, it's kind of small in comparison, and um, it doesn't really. It's not the grand structure where you see the Wilderness Lodge. But once you go into the lobby, it's a totally different story. Um, so that's it's very different between Wilderness Lodge and Animal Kingdom Lodge. Wilderness Lodge is very grand when you first walk in, but when you first see it. But the Animal Kingdom Lodge, he purposely made it a little bit small in the front and more grand inside so that you – and made you feel like you're actually look, walking into a small African lodge but then really up the ante once you got inside in this grand – lobby is huge design and the you know the the springs hot water springs that gives you the feel of the the volcano extinct volcano idea but you know and even in the savannah itself the design excuse me the architecture itself is just amazing and you really do feel like you're in africa when you go to the animal kingdom watch so peter dominic is our second nominee mike what blows my mind is i never put 
two and two together for who Peter Dominic's father was. I mean, I, I, oh, really? I, I, yeah. <laughs> and I wish I had time to now go and research this because Peter Dominic's father was at least a three term senator. He served. He was a Republican. I believe actually it was only two terms, Dave. It was. It was. I, th- I believe it was two six year terms. Mm, okay, that could be I right. Could be yeah, yeah. No. 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 Two six year terms sounds right. Twelve years. I was going to say he was in the Senate for you know well over ten years. Um, Gary Hart was the I think the guy who 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 came in after him. Um, but he was a Republican in the sixties, early seventies, and he was one of those Republicans who was known for. You know, that one thing that <laughs> they said, that thing about Richard Nixon that Republicans don't like to talk about now, which was that he was an environmentalist. And that's mm-hmm. what Dominic was. He yes, was known absolutely. for things like uh, what was the, the the Clean Air Act, probably the beginning of um, the Environmental Protection Agency, that kind of stuff. He was, he I, was I, probably I, I'm, also part of the Endangered Species Act, which was in the 70s, too. Yeah. I pulled up his Wikipedia page as you were uh, talking, Dave. He um, was a major supporter of the Wilderness Act of 1964, the National Environmental Policy Act That's of right. 1969, the Clean Water Act of 1970, the Clean Air oh, excuse me, the Clean Water Act of 72, right. the Clean Air Act of 1970, and finally, as you said, the Endangered Species Act of 1973. I mean, it's a, it's amazing to and he's I, I remember him because he lost to Gary Hart and Gary Hart obviously went on to have a rather infamous political life but um you know but <laughs> you I, I can re- say that I remember him, famous and infamous all at the same time <laughs> um, you know and I remember I remember Peter Dominic um because of how you know because of these things he's always mentioned as one of those uh Republicans from the 60s and 70s that supported things that now seem like very liberal notions mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um when back then they really weren't uh I believe he was probably one of the guys who voted for the Civil Rights Act He was Um yeah see what I mean like things like that and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 <laughs> Yeah see things like that you always hear Peter Dominic's name put into there but most most incredibly here we have this guy who designed these hotels um, his father was one of the great uh, legislative environmentalists of his day. <laughs> I mean, that's what 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 a nice little squaring of the circle here. I think that's amazing. Anyway, Mike is a hundred percent correct about Peter Dominic. Uh, we all <laughs> we all know the influence he's had on not only on Disney but on the Animal Kingdom. We have to include the Animal Kingdom Lodge because it is part of this whole experience, right? And uh, boy, oh boy, he really hit it out of the park with that one. And um, I mean, he's the architect, so he's bringing in a lot of people to help him with the design. We're not taught; he's not the guy who curated the art or anything like that. But no. um, but he designed the building. He designed the building, and Lord knows, f- for that alone, he deserves a early induction into the uh, Animal Kingdom Hall of Fame. Um, okay, are we ready to move on? Sure. Okay. I insisted on this one. Um, the third inductee is a gentleman by the name of, and it's always tough to say, but I know how to say it. It's just whether my mouth can say the words. Uh, Nadi Gabache. <laughs> uh, you all know Nadi as the singer of Burdika. Um, But maybe what you didn't know about Nadi was, and, and, and let me say this before we even get into his life story. Um, the music in Harambe is probably, and that band in particular, is probably what separates Harambe out 
from everything else. And music and art and food and culture was always the thing that Joe Rohde wanted to bring into the animal kingdom to make it that immersive experience we were talking about before. And he honestly found, or the Animal Kingdom Disney honestly found in Naughty one of the greatest musicians <laughs> they could ever possibly have found in this man. Um, Naughty's from South Africa. He's of Zulu descent, I think. Um, he actually witnessed the murder of his father at nine years old in an apartheid-related political assassination, essentially. Um, yeah, he also um, lost his sister at a very, very young age. I think he was a teenager when his sister died. Um, he lost his mother. Uh, politics and the life experience of South Africa and apartheid, uh, and to a great extent, Africa in general, is something in the soul of this guy, of Nadi. Now, when you went to Buradika to see them play, what you probably didn't know is you were looking at one of the great South African songwriters and one of the most recognized South African songwriters in the world. He was nominated for a Grammy for a song he wrote that was recorded by the legendary Hugh Masekela, who's one of the great South African artists, musical artists of all time. Um, and uh, so you were watching a Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter up there mm -hmm. on stage. Um, he has He's released multiple albums. Um, he had a few that were released overseas, and now he has a solo one now called Strength, I think, um, that was released in last year, I believe. Uh, you know, Yes, that's correct. So when we... When I decided, as a, I, I understand you're all going to say, Dave, we know you're a musician, and yada, yada, yada. Uh, I really felt like I fell in love with the Animal Kingdom, probably more so with the induction of, with the, with the inclusion of Birdica and them, which was a few years after the Animal Kingdom opened. I mean, I loved it from the minute I walked into the door, but once my great experiences at that in that park, really, honestly, are sitting and watching that incredible group of musicians play and really watching this man, Nadi Gabashi, who you're, again, you're seeing in front of you a world-class performer, singer-songwriter, um, and a type of singer-songwriter you probably wouldn't be used to seeing in America. And so you were brought into this um, African culture through his music. He is an incredible man, <laughs> uh, you know, an amazing singer-songwriter, obviously lived, lived uh, a, you know, a difficult life and came out the other end with a message of strength and a message of inclusion, right? A uh, message mm -hmm. of love. This is a guy who we can all learn something from. He really and truly walks the walk uh, after living a life that most of us listening to this podcast could never imagine. And he comes out incredibly positive. So, you know, the other night at the Margarita Bar in Disney's yeah. Disney Springs, you can you and, and this is happening throughout. Check your check your time frames. This is happening now all the time. You can go get a margarita and sit and watch a Grammy nominated 
singer-songwriter play an acoustic set for mm-hmm. you? What right. more could you ask for? So I thought we needed to bring music into this. Music plays a huge part of, of the Animal Kingdom. The soundtrack that you're listening to is, is exquisitely curated. All that kind of stuff is true. The, the music that you hear um, that was created for the park itself. And then a lot of the music you hear as you're walking through is actually artists from um, you know African artists that somebody put together a sort of a playlist really <laughs> to listen to. Um, but at the center of all that is this amazing singer songwriter. And uh, I just didn't, couldn't see an animal kingdom hall of fame without Nadi Gabashi. No, so, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, Burdika for many years was the essence of Harambe. And um, I think the, the Disney lost a great deal to the atmosphere and just what makes Animal Kingdom uh, separate from other parks is things such as the Burdika band and losing Nadi and, and that band from, for, from Harambe is a huge, huge loss. And probably uh, one of our biggest gripes with the evil bobs is thing is, is the loss of the Burdika band. Um, for budget reasons or whatever, yeah. but um, <clears throat> I mean, he is just an absolutely tremendous, tremendous singer songwriter. Um, I have you know his album as well as Wasalu's two albums, right. um, and it's it's he's just fantastic. And we you know, we follow each other on Instagram, and Facebook, and all that kind of stuff. I, I've actually, and I think you have too, Dave. Kind of us. I, I I don't know what I say a relationship with him, but I mean, we we'll talk, to, uh, we'll exchange messages every once in a while. Um, he's a he's a wonderful guy, uh, a terrific guy too. Not just a terrific artist, but just a a, a gentleman. So uh, sure he's is. certainly deserving of uh, this spot. If you um, in twenty twenty last year, he released his album uh, Strength that came out. I think that was his first sort of solo American release. Um, yeah, he had like a he released a single a while back. Uh, but sure yeah, did. this is the first album. This is the first album under his name released here in the States. Uh, you can find it in a in a Going Native is the name of the record label. You can go find it through there. If you go to uh, goingnative.com, um, go through the artists and you'll find Nadi is um, is right in there. But um, he they did a, <laughs> released a documentary about him uh, with the release of the album. And in that <laughs> you have commentary from i mean if you if you know anything about south african musicians there are three or four that are the biggest ever including the, the Elvis presley of, of including music. including the aforementioned <laughs> hugh masakela hugh masakela uh-huh. i would probably say is like i'm gonna get hate mail for this but i would consider him sort of the miles davis of <laughs> okay of of South Africa. He's um, an instrumentalist. He's a singer too, but he's known for trumpet playing and he's just incredible. Um, the bass player who played for Paul Simon's Graceland, Bikiti Kamalo, I think is his uh-huh. name. Um, I mean, these are the guys who just reinvented South sure. African music um, after apartheid and kind of brought it to the world. And they all talk about Nadi. So this is a man that everybody knows. Um, and he's, I mean, he's toured with like Diana Ross. <laughs> I mean, all sorts right, of, right. you know, all sorts of stuff. So I, I, and I think the reason why I'm saying it and saying it here now, the way I'm doing it, the way I'm doing this here is twofold. One, I hope. When you get to see this guy play, you appreciate what you're actually getting delivered to you, what you're actually seeing, but also just so you realize 
how ridiculously stupid it was to take these guys off the stage in, in Disney's Animal Kingdom because the park and its guests and, quite frankly, its executives were blessed for years to have this kind of quality and this kind of talent be part of their of their um you know street cred part of <laughs> part of uh, you know uh, of of the fabric of the park um and hopefully he'll come back and if not hopefully he'll stay playing where he's playing uh you know in the around the park so you guys still get to go see him he does play occasionally um at Disney Springs in a couple of different venues so be aware of that again you could follow him on all the social media his his first name is spelled N A T H I I'm not even going to try to spell his last name because there <laughs> took me 20 minutes to get his to, to be able to pronounce it right um anyway Nadi Gabashi so let's get into our final induction induction sure. here which is our well, I guess we'll have to call this the second pioneers induction <laughs> i suppose <laughs> <laughs> but not these, I, I, I don't think anybody's gonna know who these people are but go ahead you want me to start it okay so you can you can start it go ahead there's a lot of things um and and i'll go to some previous information that i think a lot of people probably already have but if you're you know if you're not a disney mm-hmm. history fanatic maybe this is something that'll be um you know fascinating to you Walt Disney did so many things in his life, Um, you know, pioneered so many things in movies and in uh, theme parks, uh, all sorts of stuff Um, he was part of. He was part of the space program. He was part of, uh, you know, propaganda during the Mm -hmm. war. Just just tons and tons of stuff Walt was part of. And one of those things that he also did was Walt pretty much. I mean, maybe it's maybe it's saying it a little bit too strongly, but invented. I don't think so. He, he, he invented it. Yeah, he invented the nature documentary. Absolutely, and all those no, channels you have now, like National Geographic and and uh, Discovery Channel, Animal Planet. You yep. know, how many of those channels are there? They're all about nature documentaries. They I mean, all can thank Walt and True Life Adventures. In in um, everyone alive. In the in the Western world, I don't I can't speak for anything else. Uh, nature documentaries are a part of life. It's something that's ubiquitous. You see it everywhere. You, you've never sure. there's no one alive who hasn't seen a nature documentary or at least glanced through one. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some that have been huge productions. We've seen ones recently that are, you know, gigantically popular things that the BBC did and all. I mean, it, 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 huge productions ground shaking type of cinematography and all that kind of Some, stuff. Sometimes they're released at the movie theaters. Sometimes into movie theaters. There's Academy Awards given away. It was all sure. invented because sometime in the late 1940s, Walt Disney saw a presentation, a lecture, from a couple named Alfred and Elma Malott. These were, um, this was a couple who was doing a presentation about Alaska. I think they were in Washington or maybe in Northern California when Walt saw this. I'm not 100% sure, but I've got the story all right. But there was a time where um, they did this stuff. They did these different, uh, I guess we would call it sort of a lecture series where they did photography. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure they even, I guess they started doing a little bit of film. But right after World War II, Walt saw one of these lectures um, and then 
commission these guys to go and make a film. He then turned that film into something they called Disney's True Life Adventures. And from there began an entire industry of, <laughs> of nature documentaries that led Walt into a love of nature and a love of the environment and a love of animals uh -huh. that brings us all the way to 1998's opening of the Animal Kingdom. And uh, as we said, their name is their names are Alfred and Elma Malat. Um, they're from Wisconsin, I think you said, right? Um, uh, no, Al was born in Wisconsin. Elma was born in Seattle, and they both met in Seattle. Uh, and they later moved to Ketchikan, Alaska, where they got married and they opened up a photography studio. But that's that's sort of their background. They did a lot of the the first one that really hit for them the first the first you know big thing was an was a, a show called seal island which uh, how would you describe it mike it was sort of the first time they sort of added people added stories yeah to so there was like right so they like sort of told the story they they took this um you know nature photography and and walt actually to walt's credit well you know he saw what as you were saying saw alan elma presenting that they were doing these lectures and they, they saw these photographies and short films and Walt without even like, he didn't have like a, any, anything in mind. He didn't have a project in mind. He wasn't saying to himself, you know, I need to make a nature film, but he saw their lecture and he just was fascinated by it and said, I'm hiring them. Just go to Alaska and start filming shit. And you know, whatever. It's good and, to have money. <laughs> <laughs> so he sent them there. To, and they started exactly and they started just you know he just hired them on the spot to film in lo, on location in alaska and what you brought was what you said dave was seal island the very first uh, of the true life adventure films and um you know it they did kind of use uh, they kind of humanized uh, you know the the story kind of um you know made it you know had a story and you know, the steels were doing this and the, you know all that kind of stuff and even today Disney's nature films kind of do that to some degree. Uh, other nature films, you know, stay away from that kind of stuff. But Disney kind of it gives it a little bit of a human element. And this was the first one that really did that. And that was Seal Island, which also, by the way, won an Academy Award. Right. I was just going to say, we're talking about Oscar-winning filmmakers here. They won six, actually, for, uh -huh. uh, for Disney films. Um, the other being Beaver Valley, the Alaskan Ex Eskimo, Bear Country, Nature's Half Acre, and Waterbirds all won Academy Awards along with Seal Island, and they were the cinematographers for all of those. Uh, I mean, an amazing career that they had. Uh, on sort of what we would, you would say a um, you know one they weren't expecting to have, <laughs> mm -hmm. if, not, if nothing else. Um, and then. After a few years, I think they released uh, one in Florida about the Everglades. They, yep. um, you know, and these were all big deals. Um, Disney sent them to Africa, and three he sent years. them there for three years <laughs> to film a film called The African Lion. Right? Do I have that right? Or the African? You, you have it the right. African the African cat or something. The African lion. The African lion. Um, and there you go. You can trace <laughs> Disney's. Um, the the company's love and um, devotion to culture and you know and Africa and the animals and what we see all the way back 
to Walt hiring Alfred and Elmo Malad and sending them to Africa for three uh-huh. years, coming back apparently with stories um, for Walt that he found incredible. I think Walt put on... Um, he actually, I think, he made a documentary that, uh, or there was a series of television shows that were about them. So mm-hmm. during this time in Africa is when them, these two people became sort of semi-famous, right, for um, among Disney people at the time. Because Disney at the time had a show, uh, a weekly television show, that a lot of these documentaries and stuff were shown on. Uh, and then he would introduce them and he would talk about them. I think they might have even been interviewed by him. I may have some of this wrong. Um, I'm running off just old memory here because they're really hard to find any they're, serious they're information. They were part of the Mickey Mouse Club show. They were, there you go. Um, I didn't know if it was that or the Sunday show. What was the, no, world, was the wonderful world of what? Yeah. Um, and it was called Cameras in Africa, which was a series of segments about about their life and yes it was in- introduced by walt see it's all in the, it's all back there mike i just can't bring it forward <laughs> into uh, you know i don't have the ability to do that so there you go our pioneers in the uh, 2021 class of the animal kingdom is uh al and elma malat who yes. made the true life adventure series of nature documentaries and invented and then- that genre they did they did and in 1959 all the way back in 1959 they retired uh to washington they did write three books the story of the platypus the story of the hippopotamus and the story of the alaskan grizzly bear and dave even in retirement they filmed a seagull sequence for the birds by alfred hitchcock one of the alfred hitchcock's famous wow. films uh was in part filmed by the malats only only a small uh sequence of seagulls um and interestingly well maybe not it's tragically i guess is better uh, Elma passed away on April nineteenth, nineteen eighty nine, and Al died just five days later. Isn't that uh, so? He, yeah, yeah, he couldn't uh, he couldn't live uh, without Elma. So uh, it's kind of a beautiful, but also tragic in a way story. Yeah. An um, amazing. But, and, you know, but they were both in their eighties. They were both born right. in the, at the at the turn of the century. So uh, they they lived good, and they were apparently they were retired for thirty years, <laughs> enjoying life. So good for them. An amazing partnership. Um, and not only were they, um, you know, great naturalists and all that, they were beautiful filmmakers. I mean, the footage that they shot for some of these things is just amazing. And it was really for people, you know, who didn't live in Africa or never been to Alaska. And think about what the time we're talking about here. That's most people, you know, <laughs> that's most people yeah. who were seeing this have not visited yeah, yeah. those places. Those are far off, difficult places to get to, even in the 1950s. And, and at that time, you didn't really see many films about it. I mean, you, right. nobody even saw what Alaska looked like, or in many ways, Africa. Right. Usually, these were zoo animals or uh, right or circus animals brought into uh, a soundstage in uh, you know with fingers crossed, hoping that they didn't get upset. Uh, a soundstage in Hollywood. This was the first time somebody really went and shot such beautiful footage of things. I mean, remember, this is the first time somebody saw a lion in Africa on on their screens. It's yeah, the first yeah, time absolutely. somebody saw a hippopotamus or a grizzly bear walking around in the woods in Alaska. Um, so they really did bring the world to us, which in a way is not to wax too poetic, is what Joe Rodeo always tries to do, right? Mm-hmm. Tries to bring the world to us, um, the stuff that we don't know about to us. And that's what they did. And, and so we, uh, you know, we... We, they they definitely deserved a very early spot in the pioneer <laughs> wing of the Hall of Fame. So you know maybe we'll have two statues for them in our museum when you enter. You'll see Walt and then 
Alfred and Elmer Lamar. Well, they got to be plaques, right? They're plaques in Cooperstown. They're not. They're not. There statues. are plaques. They have some statues, but the, the, so everybody who's inducted gets a plaque. That's true. So that's it. There's your four. Our new. Uh, we now have eight members of the uh, Disney's Animal Kingdom Hall of Fame. Now I have to go find pictures to put them on the Instagram page. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could be too hard. I wish I had the uh, the techno- technological ability to you know superimpose them onto a plaque so it looked like <laughs> is that it mike is that all we got that's, today that's that's it for the hall of fame dave yes all right don't forget you can follow mike on twitter at jumbo everyone uh safari mike safari underscore mike on instagram mm-hmm. right? yes um, correct the sort of instagram page for the show is disney's animal kingdom as mike mentioned before you can follow also us uh, follow us also on facebook at radio harambe um you can follow me on twitter at radio harambe um although if you really need to get to me about something uh you can also email us jumbo everyone at gmail.com that's the best way for you to get to me and have me see something uh if you want to get me on twitter add mike because i never look at twitter <laughs> mike looks at twitter constantly so he is, he's definitely the guy to go to there. Um, so I guess that's it. That's for, it, Dave. For Safari Mike, I'm Dave McBride. Quaharini, go well. And thank you for listening to Radio Harambe. Now, who do you